Thank you for all the different questions. I grouped them, uh, as last time, I grouped different of the uh, ones together. It may not exactly be obvious why they're all grouped together, but there, w- there was some common thread in my mind anyway. So the first few. Please speak about right view as it applies to creating and sustaining a vision for one's life that is a basis for priorities and making choices. Could you speak about working with intention and discerning whether an intention is unwholesome, neutral, or wholesome? Can it be true that all those many people who have not heard of Buddhism have no chance to become happy? (laughs) So I think we'll start with the right view. I mean, it is a very important aspect of the teachings. It's the first step of the Eightfold Path. And in many ways, although different of the elements of the Eightfold Path can be practiced separately, one way of understanding the different steps is that each one leads naturally into the next. So right view or right understanding being the first is really the foundation for our whole spiritual journey. And there are a few aspects of right view or right understanding that do become the basis for direction in one's life, for creating priorities. The aspect we've talked about earlier in the retreat is the understanding or the view that actions have consequences. That depending on our motivation, our intention, whether wholesome or unwholesome, we will experience happiness or unhappiness in our lives. And so this seems to be just a tremendously important understanding, not only for our practice here, but out in the world, as we make choices about our lives. We need to pay attention to the quality of our motivation the quality of our intention. So the question which was then raised, how can we discern, you know, whether it's wholesome, whether it's unwholesome? I have a strong sense that we really know. When we take the time to look, when we take the time to pay attention, just as a simple example, which... You don't have much opportunity to do now, but soon enough, before speech. We rarely take the time to really check in with our motivation before we speak. And yet it's the motivation which determines whether that speech is wholesome or unwholesome, whether it will bring us happiness or not. And so all of our training in attentiveness, in mindfulness, in honesty, we're really willing to see that there are these different sides of ourselves and we're honest enough 
to look, we actually can tell whether something is being driven by kindness or by fear or by envy or jealousy or generosity or love. It's not that it's so hard to discern. It's difficult to remember to look. So I have a great faith in the basic intuitive understanding, intuitive wisdom we can bring to the moment when we're there for it. I don't think it's hard for us to know whether our motives are skillful or unskillful. But we do need to take the time to see. Another aspect of right view which very much determines or helps us determine a course of action in our lives, our priorities, has to do with the insights into impermanence and unsatisfying nobility. (laughs) I don't really like the word unsatisfactoriness but just the unsatisfying quality because everything is changing. I mean, it seems so obvious. And also the selfless, empty nature of things. It's this right view into those three characteristics which can really give us a sense of what's of value and what's of importance. You know, it's said that the Bodhisattva, before he became enlightened, that one of the thoughts that occurred to him was, why should I, who am subject to change and decay and death, subject to impermanence, keep seeking that which is subject to impermanence? You know, it's a good question for all of us. Why should we devote our lives simply to that which in its nature is going to change? If we can hold that insight very clearly in our hearts and our minds, it begins to open us up to other possibilities, which of course is what brought us all here. And we all have this understanding already. The challenge will be in leaving the retreat, you know, and going back into the world, how can we orient our lives in some way that's supportive of our deepest aspirations? It comes back to attention to motivation. It comes back to articulating what our deepest motivations and aspirations are which leads to another aspect of right view or right understanding, which when I first came across, it seemed quite obscure to me. But as I reflected on it, it suddenly became such an important piece. When you read in the texts of the description of right understanding, one of the aspects of it is that the understanding that there are enlightened beings in the world. Well, when I first read that, 
it didn't really seem to fit in with you know the understanding of karma and the three characteristics. What's so important about acknowledging or the right view that there are enlightened beings? But as I sat with that and tried to understand why so much importance was given to it, I realized that to the degree that we deny that possibility in others, we're denying that possibility in ourselves. And to the degree that we acknowledge that possibility in others, that potential, we are acknowledging it in ourselves. And that seems tremendously important. This something crucial in understanding that, yes, enlightenment, liberation, freedom is a possibility, is a potential for all of us. That element of right understanding can be a tremendous beam of light in our lives. And we can actually chart our course in life with that in mind. So then it comes to that last question, which actually I think it points to a very important uh, actually an element of right understanding. You know, can it be that all those many people who have never heard of Buddhism have no chance to become happy? The important point here which when not understood is the cause of so much sectarianism in the world, is that happiness, freedom, salvation, whatever word you'd like to give to the highest understanding, at least from a Buddhist way of understanding things, but I think is really in common with many other traditions, is that it's not really about belief in systems. It's about what qualities of heart and mind are being cultivated. And so whether one knows about Buddhism or not, if the cultivation of generosity is there and love is there and kindness is there and wisdom is there, happiness is going to follow. So it has to do with values and those qualities which are valued, it doesn't have to do with calling oneself a Buddhist. One of my favorite lines is <clears throat> that the Buddha never taught Buddhism. You know, the whole notion of Buddhism came much later. The Buddha taught the Dharma. He just taught the law, the truth. He taught the nature of our minds very much from that place of an invitation to all of us to come and see for ourselves. So it's not a belief. It's not dependent on belief. In fact, in many cases, belief gets in the way of a clear seeing. So, What is the difference in the healing of old wounds that come up in Vipassana as compared to psychotherapy? 
Is it just the relationship to impermanence or also other factors? Could you speak about conceit in craving for non-existence? Might shame be one manifestation of the latter? This is quite an interesting question of an ongoing one in terms of dealing with the strong emotions and feelings, whether they're wounds or not wounds, but just the very deep conditioning that comes up in practice, and I'm sure all of you by now, at some point or another, have re-experienced old feelings, old memories, old hurts, sometimes very traumatic ones. So what's the difference in the meditative approach from the psychotherapeutic one, if there is a difference? I think that they are overlapping circles. So I think there are some areas of therapy and meditation that actually work in quite the same way. But then there are certain areas in which the two seem to me quite different. The arena of commonality, I think, has very much to do with clear-seeing, acceptance, non-judging of what's coming up. But in both meditation and therapy, we have to be willing to accept the feelings, to see what's there. If we're in denial or resistance or heavy judgment about it, it's impossible to really become free from either side. From that place of acceptance, then at least in some modes of therapy, there would be, I think, much more concern with the particular individual story line which created those feelings and really tracing back the causes and conditions and what happened in one's life to create that as a way of understanding. And that, at times, can be very helpful. From a meditative side, the story is not that important. The why things are arising is not that important. The key element from a meditative point of view, once we're in that place of acceptance, is how are we relating to that emotion? How are we relating to the hurt? How are we relating to the fear? How are we relating to the anger, the rage, whatever it may be? So I'll just uh, give a little visual example. (laughs) This is just my glasses case, so it's nothing special. Usually what happens is there's a situation, whether in the present or the past, or the future. Actually, we can do this with things that haven't even happened yet. It doesn't seem to stop the mind. (laughs) So there's some situation of past, present, or future. The situation comes up in the mind, and we have an emotional reaction to it. So let's suppose, for example, somebody did something which was really hurtful. Okay? 
So that's the situation. Hurtful. Somebody does something that's hurtful. This middle, that's what I call A, position A. Position B is our reaction to that hurtful action. And our reaction is probably anger, fear, rage, whatever. And in that reaction, we keep thinking about the situation and about the person. And we think about the person, and we feel more reactive. And as we feel more reactive, we think more about the situation. And we are in this loop going around, generally, or often, with not a little amount of judgment and blame, which actually are the tendrils of mind which keep us locked into this loop. Okay, A is the situation, B is our reaction. Mostly we stay looped around in that. But if we see what's going on and begin to apply a meditative perspective, instead of feeling whatever it is, the hurt, the wound, the whatever the emotion is, instead of looping back to the situation, if we can go from position B to position C, which is the question, how am I relating to this emotion? The lower my hand. <laughs> 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 That's how I'm relating. <laughs> it's quite amazing. As soon as we ask that question, how am I relating to this feeling? In that moment, the situation has become irrelevant. Now, this is quite startling, because before that, the situation was the predominant focus of our attention. And we're looping around it, blaming, judging, whatever. As soon as we shift our perspective to the question, well, how am I relating to this feeling? The situation has nothing whatsoever to do with how we're relating to it. That's completely up to us. That's our responsibility. And in that question... We've already shifted from identification with it, the feeling, with the tendrils of blame or judgment, to a place of mindfulness, to a place of inquiry, of investigation. That is the meditative approach to being with all of these impressions, sometimes which are very powerful, which can come up. That seemed clear. It's a very effective way of unhooking from our identification with what's arising, which is fed by our continually looking back to the situation. Now, what's interesting in all this is that as we move to position C, how am I relating to this? And in that becoming free of identification, then it's possible to actually respond to the situation from a freer place. So it doesn't mean that we ignore what needs to be attended to. It means we're responding rather than reacting. And so in this way, I think the meditative approach is different, at least in part, from many of the therapeutic ones, which would get more into the story, into the history.
And it is interesting that part of the meditative process is also therapeutic in the sense that all of this stuff that we're holding, it comes up as you see, you know, we're sitting here, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, and everything we're carrying sooner or later begins to surface. And that is in fact the purifying process. But it would be interesting for you as different strong emotions come up, you know, from past or present events, just see whether your mind is inclining more to the storyline, referring back to the situation, or it's making that shift. How am I relating to this feeling? So just see the difference between those two approaches because I think they lead to quite different places. So could you speak about conceit in craving for non-existence? Might shame be one manifestation? Now, as you know, the Buddhist use of the word conceit (coughs) really has to do with that very deep sense of I am, I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm equal to, and so there's always the comparing function in the conceit. And what's interesting is that conceit arises in the mind up until we're fully enlightened, until we're arhans. So even after we have insight into selflessness, transforming insight into selflessness, the habit of comparing still goes on. Even though on a fundamental place we know that that habit of comparing is selfless, still it's arising in the mind. So we want to come to some friendly detente uh, with the comparing mind. Now this craving for non-existence in a way is related to conceit Because craving for non-existence has within it or is predicated on the belief that there is someone there to non-exist. Of course, this is a great delusion. It's like, this is to anthropomorphize the Big Dipper, but... It's like having the wish that the Big Dipper didn't exist. It's not there in the first place. (laughs) It's only a concept. So to have the wish for it not to exist is already predicated in a misunderstanding, a wrong view. Now, this feeling of shame, which may be there and may be arising, could very well condition, I'll just back up, the identification with that feeling of shame could very well condition this wish for non-existence. Because we're so identified with this very unpleasant feeling and it seems as if it would be better if 
just weren't there to feel it. The problem, though, is not in the feeling of shame, which is another conditioned feeling arising and passing. It's in the fact that we identify with it as being self. We've created the illusion of someone there in that moment. And because of that particular feeling, that could then lead to the desire for non-existence. But it's all based on a misperception. And this just ties into one other element, which the Dalai Lama spoke of, and I think he actually was in response to a question that someone asked him here in this hall when he came during a three-month course, I think it was in the late 70s. It was this you know, wonderful visit. And somebody asked him a question about unworthiness. You know, and how to, how to deal with the feeling of unworthiness. And in a very rare moment of the, seeing the Dalai Lama get very uh, intent you know, in his response... He said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. To believe that feeling of unworthiness and to identify with it is wrong, not that the feeling arises, that's not wrong. To believe it, to believe that it's true because our basic nature, you could call it empty awareness, you could call it absolute compassion, you could call it the unconditioned, whatever word. And next week I'm going to be talking about this essential nature of mind. That is our nature. That is the the groundless ground of Buddhahood. And so from that understanding, to believe the feeling that we are unworthy is just incorrect. (laughs) So stop it. (laughs) Again, I just want to make sure this is clear. This is not about that it's incorrect that the feeling arises. Because that feeling, like everything else, it's conditioned. It's conditioned by circumstances in our history. And the fact that it arises is no problem. Can we relate to it as just another feeling? What's incorrect is believing it to be true. Because our very nature, not something we have to get, the very essence of the nature of mind contains within it the potential for Buddhahood. And so the more we recognize it, the more we rest in that, cultivate it, there's a tremendous sense of joy, of confidence, of trust, even through all the many ups and downs of the practice. What are the various stages of enlightenment? 
if there are different stages of enlightenment and what distinguishes them from stages of practice leading up to them. Do first experiences of insight into anatta or impermanence vary widely in intensity and scope among practitioners? Do some people get a finger in the crack of the door while others have a mind-blasting satori? <laughs> Does the experience, uh, is the experience gradual or is there an immediate paradigm shift? There are many different models uh, in the different schools for enlightenment and stages of enlightenment. But all of them, I think, agree that there are moments of recognizing what in some schools are called my nature, in other schools might be called the unconditioned, and again, next week, I'll be talking more about this. All schools recognize, or I think agree, that there are these moments of recognition that really transform our understanding of ourselves, of the world. Depending on the strength, and we could think of this as parami, of what we're bringing to the moment from our past practice, We could think of it in terms of the varying strength of the spiritual faculties, you know, faith and concentration, mindfulness, effort, wisdom. Depending on the paramis, the spiritual faculties, we may experience it with varying degrees of intensity. And for some people, it may just be a glimpse. And for other people, it may be a radical, a radical shift of understanding. Whatever it is, it's still just the beginning. Because if we think of, whether you call it full enlightenment or Buddhahood or the completion of the journey, this is a vast, this is a vast journey, a vast undertaking. And for me, the vastness of it and the depth of it is precisely what's so inspiring. It's not a question about of an enlightenment weekend weekend. You know, that's there may be some insights in that, but that's not what we're doing. We're really talking about the deepest understanding and purification of the mind, and of all the forces of greed, of hatred, of ignorance, of delusion. Well to see from taking the time to look inward and to train our attention. We see this is no small thing. The habits of mind are very deep. And so one teacher, which again I'll refer to in the talk next week, he had a wonderful expression, sort of a framework for understanding our, our whole journey, He called it sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And so it was acknowledging those moments 
where we really do awaken to something essential, to the essential emptiness, selflessness of this whole process. We get that glimpse, whether it's a small glimpse or you know, some big fireworks, it, it really doesn't matter. So there's a sudden awakening to our nature, but then it requires a gradual cultivation of that understanding. And this is what in some schools would be called the various stages of enlightenment, you know, where we deepen our understanding, make it fuller. In other schools, it's called clarifying the view. You know, we get a glimpse and then it needs to be clarified. The difference between what are called stages of enlightenment and stages of insight really have to do... Stages of insight is insight into the nature of conditioned phenomena. So we experience the impermanence of things and the unsatisfying nature. That's all insight into this realm, the relative realm of phenomena. We could call stages of enlightenment as being those moments when the mind opens to what's beyond the relative. We call it the absolute, the unconditioned essence of mind. Now obviously the one leads to the other. Because the more we have insight into this arising phenomena as being impermanent, as being selfless, unsatisfied, it loosens the grip of attachment. As we loosen the, this grip of wanting, of craving, of grasping, the mind relaxes back into its essential empty nature. On a subtle but deep level, I can see that I'm not totally convinced that I can't push unpleasant things away. There's still the hope, that hope, that wish, it might work. What's the remedy? (laughs) (laughs) Here's here's part of another question. Uh, Could you speak about more detail about feelings craving, the feelings craving complex? How to identify and eliminate this connection to craving? I'd like to talk about this not only with reference to the unpleasant and that kind of deep-seated aversion we have and wish that it'll go away, but also on the other side of pleasant feeling, you know, and just that hope that it will stay or grow. And we've talked a lot over these weeks, of course, of noting, you know, pleasant and unpleasant. And in the moment of noting, seeing if the mind can be with that mirror-like wisdom, which is simply noticing the fact that it's pleasant or unpleasant. But sometimes, in my experience, I found that that noting, or pleasant or unpleasant, wasn't quite enough, just as this question 
implied that even as I would be noting pleasant or unpleasant, I could just hear it in the tone of the note. Oh, pleasant, pleasant, <laughs> pleasant, please stay a little longer. <laughs> you know, or, and the same with the unpleasant. And so what I found really helpful, and it, it was something very simple, but somehow it seemed to frame the experience with greater clarity. Based on the whole teaching of dependent origination, in that the feeling is arising in the moment of contact. And so there's contact with the object, whether a sight, a sound, a thought, an image, a sensation. So there's contact with the object, and right in that moment of contact, the feeling is there of it being pleasant or unpleasant. But what I found very helpful in disengaging the reactivity in my mind was actually making a dual note. So I would note contact pleasant or contact unpleasant. And simply by adding that note of contact before the pleasant and unpleasant, in some way it just help the mind settle back and frame the whole experience of that moment. Whereas when I simply noted pleasant or unpleasant, I just found my mind leaning into the wanting or the aversion. Is this making sense? It's just... It's adding the note of that other element of what's happening in that moment. Because the contact feeling are arising together. And it's not that they're they're happening separately. In the very moment of contact with the object, the feeling is there. And so making the note contact feeling actually is embracing the whole experience. And that's what, at least in my practice, it really helped the unhooking. Well, this was a question that we discussed with my colleagues at tea time. The question was, does forgiveness practice help to purify the karma of the person forgiven? Uh-uh. There were two, two things came out of our discussion. On the one hand, you know, as you know from the equanimity phrases, or will know when we get to it, all beings are the heirs of their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes for them. And so the basic understanding of the law of karma is that one doesn't purify another that we each need to do that work ourselves, that we are all the heirs of our own actions. So that's on the one side. So from that side, we could say forgiveness really lightens our heart, but does not necessarily purify at all the karma of the person we're forgiving. But from another side... 
we could really look at the effect of our forgiving heart in the present on that person. Sometimes people wonder or ask, and this is in a similar vein, you know, well, does metta have an effect? You were sending metta, and does it have an effect on the people we're sending it to? It's strange because if we were to ask or even look back at our experience, well, when somebody's angry at us, does it have an effect? Usually it does. I mean, if somebody's really angry at us, we feel it. So why do we think that anger has an effect and love doesn't? Of course it has an effect. Whether a person is always conscious of it or not depends on their own openness and sensitivity. But the energy that we're putting out, the energy that we're radiating, cannot help but have an effect. So if we have forgiven, if we actually have let go and are able to come to that place of forgiveness, that is going to have an effect either now or down the line on that person because obviously just think of how we would feel. If we've done something wrong or something hurtful, the difference between somebody holding a lot of anger towards us how would that make us feel as compared to how we'd feel if we knew that that person had forgiven us? Obviously, there would be a difference. To the degree that our forgiveness allows the other person to let go of their fear, their defensiveness, whatever contraction is there, in that sense, we are helping them purify their karma. So it's not that they don't experience the fruit of their past actions, but it does begin to loosen the quality of the heart in the present moment. I think just an important point here is not to confuse forgiving with condoning. Because it's not about condoning unskillful action. It's not about not taking appropriate response. It is about the quality of our own hearts from which our response or our action comes. This is quite an interesting point. It takes a lot of our own investigation in it and in our experience. It would just be interesting, and I say this all as an invitation to look. It's not a question of believing this or not believing it. It's all just an avenue for our exploration. But it would be interesting to look at the degree to which we don't forgive 
the degree to which that keeps us locked in the dream of samsara. So that's a little koan to hold. Can awareness know itself except can awareness know itself except uh, except through the reflection in an object? So can can we have an experience of awareness? Not tied, not tied necessarily to an object. Well, mostly we are aware or we can become aware of the knowing through what's being known. So through a sound, a sight, a smell, a taste. And in the Abhidhamma teachings it says the clearer we are about the object, the clearer consciousness becomes. And so we can really use each arising object, the clarity of our perception, the completeness of our mindfulness on just the very ordinary run of objects in our experience, that is purifying or clarifying the experience of consciousness. So that's one way we get to become aware of the knowing mind. There are times in practice when objects are not arising and it's simply knowing. There's just, there's just the process of knowing going on. And at that stage of practice, then it gives us another intimate sense of knowing independent of an object. This ties in a little bit to the question of rebirth. When I first went to India and was practicing, I didn't come from a... I had studied philosophy at college, you know, and so I came from a very Western, Western mode. I didn't, I didn't have a belief in rebirth or other lives. And there were a few different things which slowly led me to consider this possibility and to finally just have a, a feeling or an intuition that it really made sense. But one of the pieces, one of the things that really helped me get a handle on the possibility was the experience in meditation of consciousness being immaterial. Because I used to do walking meditation, and I remember one time in particular I would just be walking and searching for where the knowing was. You know, is it in my body? Is it outside of my body? Is it? And it was just this great mystery. I went, well, where is it? Until I realized that the where was the wrong question. Because where implies materiality of some kind. Sense of place. And that the knowing was immaterial. It didn't exist any place. Because it was an immaterial phenomenon. And when I began to just get a 
little bit of a glimpse of this immaterial nature of consciousness, of awareness, then the possibility of something continuing after the death of material elements seemed like a possibility anyway, because it wasn't tied to the physical elements, because it wasn't physical. So it's very interesting. I mean, what we're doing here is really this profound investigation of the nature of who we are, of this mind and body, Because mostly people are living in such a conventional reality, living in the movie. Wait till you leave here. (laughs) 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 I've had a couple of occasions to go and do a few teaching things uh, outside. It's quite amazing, the world. Okay, maybe one or two more. In your talk on karma, you said that the law of karma was one of the natural universal laws. You also mentioned the laws of nature. Would you mind expanding on natural law and the laws of nature from the Buddhist perspective? Also, are there karmic consequences from thoughts? That seems an important question. (laughs) Uh, I don't know whether anybody has spoken before. Just from, from the Buddhist teachings, the understanding that the law of karma is only one of the laws governing this unfolding life, this unfolding world. Sometimes people tend to think that everything is a karmic result. And the Buddha talked just about other laws which correspond much more to our understanding of the laws of science. Uh, and he used a few examples, because it was all couched in the language of his time, uh, but he talked about the law, the caloric law, just the laws regarding heat. And I know maybe that's somewhat equivalent to the laws of thermodynamics, about which I know nothing. But you know, the law he talked about the laws of seeds, you know, germination, the fact that you plant an apple seed and you don't get a mango tree. Now, there are certain natural laws at work that have nothing to do with karma. It's just just the physical laws of nature. The way we experience the fruit of karma is in our experience of things being pleasant or unpleasant. It's those feeling states in each moment which are the karmic resultants. And that's why different people could experience the same object. One person could think, could experience it as being pleasant, the other unpleasant. I had that very strong experience when I went to my one and only Bruce Springsteen concert. And this was in Oakland at the Coliseum. I don't know, there were 70,000 people there. 
I experienced it as a hell realm. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was so loud and so noisy and so assaulting of the senses. And here were 69,999 other people loving it. <laughs> so clearly it was my own unwholesome karma. <laughs> That was just, in that moment, it was experienced as very unpleasant. <laughs> so we can experience things differently. But that quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness, that's the karmic fruit. It's not, it's not so much what it is that happens, but rather the feeling states in what happens. In terms of thoughts, you know, whether there are karmic consequences from thought, it really depends a lot on the level of identification and action based on that thought. A thought that simply comes and goes, in which we're not particularly identified, and it's just passing through, regardless of the content, it really has very minimal repercussions, because we're really seeing the emptiness of it. We just see the thought self-liberate. But, for example, if we are filled with anger and we're really identified with it, you know, and we're really caught up in it a lot, that is generating some kind of karmic force. It's less than if it gives rise to speech, less than if it gives rise to action. But just that holding on to it tightly, there's, there's some karma there. Just as when there's an intentionality behind doing metta, for example. That's the generation of loving thought, and there's an intention, there's a motivation there. That's a skillful, wholesome state of mind, and that brings its own result. So if we're in a place of understanding the absolute emptiness of things, no problem if we're in a more usual relative mode where we do get caught up a lot, it's very helpful to really see which thoughts are we giving energy to, which thoughts are we letting go of. There's uh, one of the teachings of the Korean Zen master, Sansani, uh, who had there are many wonderful lines. He said, from the absolute perspective, he was said, there's no right and no wrong. Because from the absolute perspective, it's all empty. But he would go on to say, there's no right and there's no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. You know, and it's really holding both of those at the same time, because that's the union of the relative and absolute. So we see that thoughts are essentially empty. If we can be in that understanding, the content does not matter at all. And yet right is right and wrong is wrong because when we give intention, when there's an intentionality, a motivation connected with those thoughts, then they do have consequences. We really need to have some wise discernment.
There were, as I mentioned, quite a few questions about the nature of awareness and emptiness and that whole range, and that's what we'll be talking about next week. Um, This last question was, could you say something about bhavanga and how one can experience it? You know what bhavanga is? (laughs) Bhavanga is the consciousness of deep sleep. (laughs) and we experience it all too often (laughs) but what is interesting is that actually and again this is according to Abhidhamma but we we can see it in our experience that it's talked about how Bhavanga consciousness actually arises during our waking hours in between moments of waking consciousness, uh, that there'll be these moments of bhavanga consciousness. In those times when you're feeling, you know, a little bit sleepy and your uh, your body begins to slump, not from an energetic pushing around of the body, but when you, there's no longer that energy of holding the body erect, that happens because. There's a few bhavangas in a row there. <laughs> because bhavanga consciousness doesn't have the capacity to hold the body erect, which is why, for example, when you fall asleep, you kind of you slump over. Uh, just one, one little theoretical point of interest. and I don't, I don't know how this is known, but... It's said that the object that Bhavanga consciousness takes, the image it takes as an object, is. Need to back up a little bit. Just at the time of death, just before the time of death, it said the mind gets a nimitta or a sign or an image related to where it will. It's next birth. Um, and it's said that the Bhavanga consciousness of the next birth has as its object that sign from the dying moments of the last life. So, I mean, that's in a way completely irrelevant. <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't know, it's just kind of interesting to... to They're amazing things. Not not that that's necessarily one of them, but they're really quite amazing things to learn about our minds. You know, just the the depth of conditioning and the essential emptiness of it all, and the way it contracts and fixates on what's arising, and the opening into freedom in the moment. And it's really what makes the practice so incredibly inspiring and fruitful. Let's sit for a few minutes.
sit for a couple of moments not doing anything, simply receiving whatever object appears. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.